Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. It's We are going to be in Acts chapter 17 tonight. Acts chapter 17. I believe this is the second time I've preached from this, but we're going at it from a different perspective here. So Acts chapter 17. Uh, Pastor Tim tasked me tonight with discussing logic and reasons as tools for Christ in our series on apologetics. There is no way I will be able to cover everything about how to use logic and reason, not even close, but hopefully it'll be a nice introduction and how to take these two really, you know, probably annoying concepts you had to learn about in Philosophy 101 and how to turn them into something you can use for Christ. In fact, we use them every day. We just don't always think about using them every day. And, um, you know, I think, I think sometimes philosophers, especially philosophy professors, they, uh, they make a lot of this stuff seem a lot more um, abstract than it is just to get a paycheck. You know, like Plato, uh, where do you learn Plato's ideas? Well, you go to the academy, which is where you'll pay Plato to learn about his ideas. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, um, to the text. So, we're in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be starting in verse 16. We're going to go through verse 31. And if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them who met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others some He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is, whereof thou speakest. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. God that made the world and all things therein seeth that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far off from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your young poets have said, we are his offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto silver or gold or stone, graven by art and man's choice, or man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day you've given us a set aside to worship you. Thank you for your word that you've passed it down to us in a language that we can read and understand, Lord. And thank you for those who gave their lives or who gave um, all of their life to get us this word in our language. Lord, we pray that it would continue to be translated into other languages so that many more could read your words in their, in, um, their own language. 
God, um, thank you for that reversal of Babel. And Lord, thank you um, again for your son, Jesus, who lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us, Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, in the old movie, Monty Python on the Holy Grail, Sir Arthur, King of the Britons, finds a knight answering a mob regarding a witch they think that they have found. So they're like, she's a witch. The knight asks how, she know, how they know she is a witch. The mob tells him that since she's dressed as a witch, she must be a witch. And then they admit that, well, we dressed her like that. But she does have a wart. So, because she's dressed as a witch and she has a wart, uh, she must be a witch. And also, she turned one of them into a newt, but he got better. So, she must be a witch. The knight decides that a test will be done to determine if she is a witch. Since you burn witches and you burn wood, then a witch must be made out of wood. So he asks them what they should do. They first say we should build a bridge out of her. He points out that uh, stone can also be used to make bridges, so that's not it. Well, since they determine that wood floats in the water and ducks float, that a duck must also be made out of wood. So if she weighs the same as a duck, she must be made out of wood and is a witch. Now, of course, it's a comedy movie. That's terrible deductive logic and reasoning, but it's, it's just a funny little thing. Um, so what are logic and reasoning? I figured we would stack the heavy part first, and then we'd get into the text so I can show you what's going on here and how it's used in the Bible, and then how we can use it in real life, how we can use logic and reasoning, and how we already do, to share the gospel. So logic is something that you and I use every day when determining the truthfulness of a statement. So whether it's true or false. In philosophy jargon, whether a statement is valid or invalid, sound or unsound, so someone proposes something to you and you determine whether or not it's true. You often see this displayed in like if-then terms, where at least two arguments are given and then concluded. So two propositions and a conclusion. For example, if all birds have wings and if all birds lay eggs, but if, and if all bats have wings but do not lay eggs, then bats must not be birds. That would be a logical statement. Later I'll show you where Peter uses an if-then statement in... Um, one of his epistles, and we'll, we'll get to that. But back to the logic here and us using it every day. When you look at your hot cup of coffee or tea or maybe a pizza roll or something you just microwaved in the oven, or not in the oven, you microwaved in the microwave, of course. Uh, you just heat it up in the microwave, and you look at it, and you, you see it, and it's steaming. So you're like, okay, well, my coffee's steaming, and I know that steam is hot because it, that means the water's evaporating, so it must be hot. So since steam is hot and my coffee's steaming, it's probably very hot, so I shouldn't drink it. But I'm going to try to sip it anyway, and ouch, ouch, my tongue, there's the top of my mouth burned, um, you know, or with the, with the hot pocket or something, you're like, you know, anyway. Uh, you guys have all seen, uh, I've probably seen a teenager do this, or you've done it yourself. Uh, it happens to all of us, so we just decide I'm going to try it, even though you said it's hot, and yeah, it was hot and it burned. So... Um, this, tonight's text we're going to see is full of logic. Uh, a simple example will be if God made all things, then he does not need to dwell in things made out of what he made. So logic is done in two different forms, deductive and inductive reasoning. Um, it's uh, one way to describe it would be deductive logic is the method of validating a claim by means of supportive information where both the claim and the information are necessarily true. For example, people exist, all people breathe, therefore all people breathe. Inductive logic is the method of drawing a conclusion from a set of supportive information, yet the conclusion has not yet been verified. 
So an example would be I get tired every night at around 10 p.m. So I can assume that tonight around 10 p.m. I'll be tired again. So that would be inductive logic. Deductive logic is what we're going to see uh, Paul using here in Acts 17. Then one more thing about logic, and hopefully I haven't lost you guys yet, but yeah, one more thing about logic. Um, there are three laws, and all three of these are important and can be used in sharing the gospel. The three main laws, the classic laws of logic, not that every system is built around these, but you have the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of the excluded middle. These all three go together. So the law of identity is that something is always what it is. So A always equals A, or 1 plus 1 always equals 2. And this, or like a chicken, I'm going to go with this example just because we have chickens at our house. They're pretty silly, and I, uh, Scarlett loves them, so I'll go with this. A chicken is always a chicken and cannot be a duck. That would be a law of identity issue. A chicken is always a chicken. The law of non-contradiction is that a statement cannot be true and false at the same time. So if I said a chicken has a beak and someone else said a chicken has a bill, one of those statements must be false and the other true. The law of the excluded middle backs off or goes off the or piggybacks off that by saying that there can't be a gray or a sometimes zone between true and false. Something's either true or it's false. It's either right or wrong. There's no middle, there's no gray area. So one could not say a chicken can sometimes have a bill based on those previous examples. So those are the three. The, um, you'll definitely hear about the law of non-contradiction used. Like whenever you go to like apologetics websites or, or uh, read apologetics books, you'll see it all the time. You'll see it in um, a lot of Sean and John McDowell's works and all over the place. So reasoning, what is reasoning? Well, reasoning could be thought of as using arguments out loud or in your own head talking to yourself. Um, to explain how they're logical or truthful, maybe even helping someone or someone else see that they already believe in the thing in which they disagree. So an example of this, an example of using reasoning and logic, uh, especially the reasoning, um, if for you parents, grandparents, and former children out there, you've probably had a conversation similar to this about food. I don't like broccoli and cheese. It's gross. But uh, you've never tried it. Yeah, but it's it's just gross. Well, you like steamed broccoli, right? Yeah. And you like the Velveeta cheese when we put it on the macaroni, right? Yeah. So then you'll definitely like those two delicious things together. No, it's gross. So that's where you're trying to use their own reasoning to explain to them. You've, you, you, you like both these things, so you'll like this if you try it. And then, anyway, they, they don't. So that, that's kind of where I'm getting at with that, with reasoning. So both logic and reasoning are parts of a greater philosophical concept called epistemology, or how we can know anything or any or know things or anything at all, or how we know possibly. Paul's main argument here at the Areopagus or Mars Hill is really one of epistemology. He's telling them how their unknown God can be known and has made himself known, and how he has always been known to them. And how his existence has made all of what they know possible in the first place. Um, we'll, get more, we'll get to Paul's argument more in a second. But epistemology uses both science and logic to determine truth. It's not concerned with belief because not all beliefs are true. Uh, which I think we'd all agree with. Not every belief can be true. Um, if one person says that um, God is triune, and another person says God is not triune, someone has to be wrong. Um, 
the earth can't both be flat and round, right? So they're always, they're like, just because you believe something doesn't make it true. What's true is true whether or not you want to believe it or not. And that's where the law of non-contradiction comes in. So, um, as Christians, the answer to how we answer epistemology is pretty simple. It's a, Sunday, it's a simple uh, child Sunday school answer. How do we know anything at all? How can we know anything at all? Well, it's because of God. The answer is just God. God exists. And because he made it all, because he has set times and epochs for things to occur, we can expect the rational and orderly universe we live in. Lee Smolin is, uh, he, you've seen this equation before most likely, but Lee Smolin is who, who, who put it together. He's a uh, uh, mathematician. He posited that the chances of our universe existing in a way that it produced the kind of advanced multi-celled life that we have here on Earth is, at, is 1 in 10 to the 229th power. 1 in 10 to the 229th power. That's a whole lot of zeros and commas. Um, and he wasn't specifically referring to Earth existing the way it does, just a planet period existing to those specifications, to, to uh, allowing for the kind of multi-celled life that we have on Earth. As Christians, we look at that number and go, wow, that's not surprising, because we know that God made our planet special. He said so. He made it good. He finished, when he made, when he made uh, humans in his image, he said it was very good. God made earth specifically the way he did, and especially for humans, for his glory. And of all the thousands and millions of planets there are in the universe, he made this one for his people to dwell on. And he made it in a fancy way, and we know that. Because God made it all. So we expect things to be the way they are because we know that God exists and we, we trust God as Christians. But now let's, let's get into the sermon and we'll, we'll um, see how Paul used some logic here. All right. So logic and reasoning drove Paul's conversations in general. That's my first point here. Logic and reasoning drove his conversations in general, as a general rule. So we're going to look specifically at Acts 16 and 17, or sorry, chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Um, so Paul, as an example for us of how we should live, um, Paul was not afraid to have deep conversations or to be in uncomfortable discussions. So he was not afraid of having deep conversations or of being in uncomfortable discussions or the messy, as some people may call it. It was where he loved to be. He loved to be in those messy, dirty, deep conversations that make you uncomfortable. Your hands get kind of a cold, clammy sweat when you're having those, especially when, you're push- when you don't know if you're pushing the buttons too far and someone's going to get mad. That's where Paul loved to be. That's where he would jump to. It was the first place he would go. You know, some people say, and I think they're wrong, but some people say that you should not discuss politics and religion in public discourse or at parties, right? Uh, Paul thought the opposite, especially with religion. It's like, well, public and the parties are where the people are, and the people need saving. I'm going to go talk about Jesus. And that's how Paul saw it. We see here in verses 16 and 17, it says that Paul was holy, was his uh, spirit was stirred up when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. If you look back at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17, we see what Paul was doing or how he would actually talk in the, the synagogues. We see it says, And Paul, as his manner, went into them 
And three Sabbath, and for three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, he uh, reasoned with them out of the scripture. So we see the reasoning. What's he reasoning? He's saying, he's opening it, and he alleges that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ. So Paul, his method was he would go to this. He would when he goes to a new city because he's going. This was his Greece tour as he was going through uh, Greece. He would find a synagogue first or find where if there weren't enough Jewish families to make a synagogue, he'd find where the Jews were meeting. And he would talk to them first. He'd always go to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles in a city. And we see, like, he's reasoning with them. He's showing them that logically the outflow of the Old Testament is Jesus coming and doing what he did and what he's continuing to do through the apostles. Um, We say, you know, the Old Testament is... Um, Christ concealed, the New Testament is Christ revealed. So the Old Testament was always pointing towards Christ. Christ said as much when he, when he showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he showed them that the scriptures like, were all pointing to him. He showed them all that the scriptures said about him. So Paul is using, he's using argumentation, he's using reasoning to show what the Jews already know and how it points and should be pushing them to seeing Christ as who he is. Actually, the scripture reading from the, tonight does a good job of that as well in um, John 10. When they say, how long dost thou make us doubt if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said to them, I told you, and you believe me not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So Jesus is pointing out how the works that he's doing should be bearing witness. You should recognize them from the Old Testament. You should know that I am the Christ who has come. Um, it's the same kind of thing. So we see there in Paul, um, we see that Paul, when he saw the pagans, he, um, well, well, how would he talk to the pagans? Sorry, how would he talk to the pagans? Well, we see that in uh, an example of that in the sermon at Mars Hill, which we will get into in a second, although that's not the only way he would speak to them. Sometimes he would walk through the whole entire Jewish religion and explain to them how Christ came, as he does against Festus and Agrippa. Um, but I want to I sit real quick on verse 16 there. So let's look at that again. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the whole city, when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. His spirit was stirred in him. So what was that city like? What was Athens like in Paul's day? Well, everywhere you looked, there'd be temples and shrines and altars. As he describes, you saw even an altar to an unknown God. There's shrines, altars, temples everywhere. Of course, the biggest ones are on the giant rock in the middle of the city. You have the Pantheon. You have the one porch with the, um, you've seen it before. There's a porch with like, uh, it's like um, statues of women hold, like as the pillars. It's really cool, actually, the columns. Uh, well, really well designed, um, even though it's most likely idolatrous. But um, unfo- using creativity for the wrong reasons, I guess. So, uh, but that was the main city in the middle, like the main part of the middle of the city was the Pantheon with the giant statue of Athena inside of it up on top of Mars Hill. So that was the, the main focus of the city. But everywhere there's, there's idolatry. You have prostitution, pagan fertility rituals, homosexuality being common, and people were living like they wanted to be the god Dionysius, who is the Greek god of frenzies, festivals, spiritual ecstasy, wine and alcohol. By wine and alcohol here, we, we mean drunkenness, absolute debauchery. Does this sound familiar at all? It should. When you look around in America at large today, you see atheism, Wiccan, and New Age on the rise. 
uh, atheism's largely being replaced. Like people don't sit in atheism anymore. They believe something, but they might not say they're an atheist who believes nothing. Um, when you see homosexuality, transgenderism, and other sins being promoted and celebrated, when you see abortion and a lack of commitment to the family being normalized, when you see drunkenness and being high seen as normal pleasures, what do you do? How do you feel? When you see it in your own community, when you see things in, in independence or where you live that are upsetting to you because they're spiritually wrong, does it make you angry? Well, it should make you upset. But what do you do with it? Do you just sit back? And um, in this part, I'm talking to myself as well here. Do you just sit back and hope that the next politician that you think will fix it gets elected and fixes it? Um, do you only pray, which you should obviously pray about it, but is that all you do? Or, like Paul, do you let seeing the idolatry and everything around you stir you to want to share the gospel? We saw how Paul's reaction was, which is he saw the city and all of its ails and all of its just debauchery and, and ab- abhorrence towards God. And Paul said, you know, uh, I'm here waiting for my friends. Um, they're going to come and get me. But I think while I'm waiting, I'm going to tell everyone here about Jesus. And we see Paul made it, he sure made it his goal. He made enough of a stir that they come and find him. So as Christians... We should not be afraid to have uncomfortable conversations. It's the name of the game. You're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations when you know the truth and you have the truth and you have to tell others the truth. As Paul says in Romans, how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? You cannot have gospel conversations with someone without getting into the nitty gritty because you will have to show them their sins and what makes them deserving of the wrath of God. And how they cannot simply be a good person like they say they are. You know, many say, well, I'm a good person. You know, my sins aren't that big of a deal. But you have to prove to them that they are. And that is going to be nothing but an uncomfortable conversation for us. But we remember that we're speaking for someone else. And that he's giving us the power to do that. So as you reason with them about that, the logic will show them that they are hopeless without Christ. One example, um, getting into like how you can use logic, would be uh, if, someone, um, if someone agrees that God exists. And then you can get them to say, like, well, let's talk about the Ten Commandments. And you can go through the Ten Commandments, and you can start pointing out, well, have you ever murdered someone? Well, no, I've never murdered someone. Well, Jesus said that murdering was, if you've, if you've hated someone in your heart, and you're like, man, I wish that guy didn't exist anymore. You've committed murder. So you're a murderer. And then you can go into, um, to like, with lust and envy and all of them, you can do the same thing. And this uh, Ray Comfort does it really well if you ever want to look him up. But it's a way you can use the logic as they start basically condemning themselves. And when we use logic and reasoning in apologetics, we know that ultimately the Holy Spirit has to do the saving. We can't save people on our own. It's up to the Holy Spirit to regenerate them. But what we can do is back them up to the edge of the cliff. Or we can take this uh, idol of their life that they have and smash it down with a sledgehammer, and then they can either agree that this is not right, I need something better, or I know it's a pile of junk, but it's my pile of junk, and then, you know, condemn themselves. Um... The way uh, there was a, a, a Christian thinker who, who put it this way, he was having a conversation with, a, with a, an atheist, and the atheist said, you know, I just can't see how God would exist. So they start going through it, and they get into the law of non-contradiction about how uh, something can't come from nothing, it has to be created by something else, and, you know, it's how, Jesus, or how God created it all. And finally he just says, you know, I see that my position is not tenable, but I just don't want to believe it. So at that point... Um, 
the, 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 the guy stops speaking to him. The Christian stops speaking to him for a bit, like at their conversation. The other guy keeps going on and on and on. And finally, uh, the Christian goes, hey, can you pass me the salt? And he goes, yeah, sure, here's the salt. And he goes, oh, so you know it's a salt shaker as opposed to everything else on this table. You knew that when I said pass me a salt and you meant the salt shaker. But you're willing to look at the logic saying that God exists and say that I just don't want to believe it. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting way to uh, pinpoint that. But moving on. So we see here now the second thing. Uh, logic and reasoning on Mars Hill. And this will pretty much be the rest of the, uh, the, the Paul sermon here. So verses 21 through 31. So how does Paul use logic and reasoning? And how, can, how, do, how do we see him using it? It's pretty simple. Um, so he starts it off on a high note here. He's going to explain to them who the unknown God is. You see there, verse 23. I passed by and beheld the devotions, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom ye therefore uh, ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. So looking at verse 24. We see that um, he points out that God, singular, one word, made the world and all things therein. So he wasn't the God of the Pantheon like you have over here next to us, um, or the Parthenon, but he's not the God of that Pantheon of Greek gods. He's not a God like that. It's a singular God, and he made the world. It wasn't the Titans. It wasn't anyone else. He made the world. Um, In the case of the Epicureans and the Stoics, it wasn't just random atoms falling and happening to bump into each other. No, it was a singular God who made the world. So his first proposition in this statement in verse verse 24 is that God made all things. His second proposition is that the Lord, or God, is Lord of heaven and earth. So first proposition, God made all things. Second, God is the Lord of heaven and earth. His conclusion is, therefore, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. So because he's the Lord of everything, because he made it all, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. So since, um, since what that means is basically that God's dwelling place must logically be outside of creation, outside of what he made. Even with the Hebrew temple, while God would meet the high priest there at the mercy seat, that was not God's dwelling place. The Hebrew temple was a picture of the greater temple, in heaven that we see pictured in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah chapter 6. The next point he makes is in verse 25, piggybacking off of this. You see, he has a, another few set of propositions here. Proposition 1, God gave all things life and breath. Proposition 2, God doesn't need anything. Conclusion, God is not worshipped by the work of a man's hands. So since he gave everyone life and breath, and since he doesn't need anything... He's not worshipped by the work of their hands. Uh, Isaiah chapter 66, 1 through 2, uh, we see Paul has been describing God exactly the way Paul des- or God describes himself. Isaiah chapter 66, 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, said the Lord. But to this man I will look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. So how is God worshipped? He's worshipped by a man who's poor and has a contrite spirit and trembleth at his word. Logically, God does not need what we can give him. Because everything that we give him, he gave us or allowed us to have in the first place. 
So this is similar, thinking that he needs what we can give him is similar to when you buy your parents a present with the money they give you. If you remember, you know, growing up, like when you're, when someone gives you money, then you buy them a present with the money they gave you. Uh, It's the same way, like everything we can give God, he's already given us. Um, Or, um, you know, you may hear, uh, usually you hear Christians who say this, it's uh, um, an issue that they can sometimes have going into legalism. You might hear a Christian say that, well, I need to be obedient to the Lord um, in order to kind of like pay God back for what he did for me on the cross or uh, to earn my salvation. You know, kind of like, you know, I know it's been earned already, but I want to like, you know, justify it. I want to make it look like I, I did deserve to get it, to earn it. Well, the problem there is that um, when we're saved, when Jesus uh, saved us, uh, we were, he had prepared us for the good works that we would do in his name. So even when we're doing those things that we might think like, oh, I'm going to pay God back for what he did for me, um, we're doing it in his strength. And when we think that we're maybe going to earn our, you know, we can earn our salvation or justify that we were saved. Uh, we're once again paying him back in, in the strength that he's given us. So we're actually making ourselves more in debt. Uh, really, so if that's you today, I want to just give you this advice. Just stick with serving the Lord out of joy and love because of what he did for you, not to earn anything from him because you can't. Uh, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. It's not supposed to be a chore, serving the Lord and, and uh, loving him and doing, keeping his commandments. It's not supposed to be a chore. So Paul continues that line of thought um, in um, verses, uh, verses 26 through 28. So we see in verse 26 that not only has God made all things, but in specific, he made people. He made humans. Um, and he gave them a place beforehand where they would dwell in the bounds of their habitation. And why did he make them? So God made these people this way. And why? So that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Now, that's interesting. Why should they seek the Lord? Well, um, Paul, Paul doesn't get time because they cut him off at the end of his sermon. But Paul doesn't get time to really break down, you know, how sin entered the world. He's just assuming that these people agree that something is wrong and that we can seek after truth and, and find it. Which, because we're all made in God's image, we all know we, um, we all know that God exists. It's, you know, unbelievers deny it, but we see in Romans 1, we all know God exists. We suppress the truth, uh, unbelievers suppress the truth of God for a lie. And everyone knows, you can ask anybody, everyone knows something is off. By off, I mean something's wrong. You know, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I say everyone, you might think, well, Trent, have you talked to everybody? I have not, but in general, uh, you, can get the, you get the general feel for everybody that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Whether they think, well, maybe, whether they're, where their answers come from for what, how to fix things or what's wrong about the world, they may be completely different. But we all agree that the world is not perfect. Um, and that there's something off. So even if you don't know, if you don't believe that God created it all, and you don't believe that um, sin entered the world, you know that it seems like this world could be better. It seems like there shouldn't be thorns and thistles every time I go gardening. Like, I, I, you know, I dig out my garden. It's going to be awesome. I've plotted it out. I've got the corn rowed up. And the next thing I know, there's, like, grass growing in there. I, I got all the grass out, or I've got my, you know, my garden. I, I dug it down. I put some tarp down. I put newspaper on top of that. I, uh, I put a giant layer of mulch, and there's dandelions. How did that even happen? 
I cut the holes around the plants like little tiny and hauser dandelions. Um, so we know that that doesn't seem like that's supposed to be the way it goes. This, this world seems wrong. And that's, you know, someone who doesn't know that the Lord said that because of your sin, it'll be harder to work the ground. Um, so everyone knows there's something just off. Like, it seems like things should be better. Um, it seems like, you know, we shouldn't, you know, people, like, it seems like there shouldn't be situations where parents have to bury their kids or where, um, you know, good people die. You know, everyone says, like, you know, why do the good die young? You hear all these phrases. So everyone knows there's something off about the world. And Paul's saying, you're right. And God actually set our, our bounds and he appointed us. He, he, he's put us to dwell on the earth. Um, that we would seek after him, though he is not far from every one of us. Um, so how do we know that God's just, well, we just, we know. It's, he's telling them, you intrinsically know. Like, this is how you know everything you know. Like, all the false gods you've made, you're making them all within the bounds of the universe that God created. Um, your crazy philosophies, like with the Epicureans and Stoics, they can only work in your mind because you're trying to think logically and rationally. Why? Because a logical and rational God made you. You don't exist by chance. It's not a random atom flipping together. It does not make sense. It's a, the, like something that, like something, like random chance does not create logic and reason and stability. It's, that's where the law of non-contradiction comes in. They can't both be true. You had to, if you had the logic and reasoning, then you had to have been made to have the logic and reasoning. And then verse 28, for in him, why did he, how is he not far from us? Here's how he's not far from us. For in him, we live, we move, and have our being. As certain also of your poets have said, for we are his offspring, or we, have, we are his children. We've been made by him. Um, in him, so in, in the Lord, like as he's mentioned earlier, he gave you all breath, and you see that in him, you live, you move, and you exist. In verse 29, for as much as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto silver or gold or stone or graven by art or man's device. So let's see, you know, hey, if God, like I've already told you guys, God is what Paul's saying. If I've already told you guys, God made everything. He made it all. So why would, a, why would God be like gold or silver or stone, things that he made? Why would he be like the things that he made? He's not those things. Those are things that he made. Things that were graven by art and man's device. Rather, the man is the offspring of God, the one who's been made in God's image. It's not God who's made man's image. The false gods of the Greeks are God's made in man's image. But they can only even think about a God existing because they know in their hearts that the actual God exists. And we see here the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now he commandeth every, men everywhere to repent. So, it's kind of a conflict, uh, that was a long one, but because God made all, na- all people from all nations, or he made of one blood all nations, because uh, they should be seeking after the Lord, and because they, in him they live and move and exist, and because God is no longer looking over uh, the, or God is no longer looking past all ignorance. He has, now, he has appointed a day, because of all those things being true, he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he hath raised him from the dead. So because God made all those things true, there will be a day that, like, it's just logical that there would be a day of judgment, and he's pointing it out to them. There will be a day of judgment where he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, 
So that's really where Paul gets with his argument. And of course, at that point, he mentions the resurrection of the dead, and they're like, okay, you're off the stage. We want to talk. Some people wanted to talk more to him about it and um, became Christians. Others did not. So Paul said his, his piece, and then he, he moved on. Um, but we see Paul, that whole thing is ripe with logic and reasoning. If we look at um, 2 Peter chapter 2, if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2, I can show you another example of this being used in the Bible. Do you ever like sing the songs of the book of the Bible, or the, the books of the Bible like songs in your head when you're flipping? Because I do, uh, for sure, especially on these small ones. All right, so 2 Peter chapter 2, looking at 4 through 9. Oh, actually, I'll go back a little bit to chapter, to first one, just to give you the context. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false prophets, or false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and brought, them on, them, brought upon themselves swift destruction. Many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, who, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. All right, so here we go, verses 4 through 9. We're going to see Paul, uh, Peter is going to do an if-then statement. So it's using, this is actually to comfort Christians and to condemn um, heretics at the same time. But we're going to see him using this if-then logic statement. Here we go. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them in a sample to those that after should live ungodly, and delivered Lot vexed with the just lot, vexed with the filthy uh, conversation of the world. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from the day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord, so if all those things are true, then the Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly, or sorry, how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust uh, unto the day of judgment to be punished. So we see there Peter doing the if-thens. If, if God did this, 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 then he will definitely do this. Essentially, if God keeps his promises, then he knows he'll continue to be faithful and keep his promises to you. Uh, he'll be continue to keep his promise to judge the law, to judge the ungodly, and he'll continue to uh, comfort those who follow him. Now, so, like, when we looked at that word, we see, you know, just obviously we should... Um, we should be willing to have the hard conversations and to, to discuss the, the Lord in ways that may be uncomfortable. And we saw that um, Paul really, like he was going straight at their heart through their, their uh, belief system. And uh, I was just going to give a few more examples of how you could use, how you see logic used in um, sharing the gospel. So, as Christians, we know that God created everything, or that's what we believe. Like, we believe it, and because we know it's true, uh, nothing else makes sense apart from God existing, and not just any God, but the triune God who, uh, your Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, why am I saying that? Well, logically speaking, it, a triune God, so you, we've had the perfect relationship of the, of the Trinity, uh, communication and all that. So, it's a God, uh, so God knows how to communicate. Let's think about Islam for a second. You have the God of Islam, Allah. 
He's singular. He's, he's uh, Unitarian, if you will. He's a singular God. How does he create creatures that can talk and communicate? And not just humans. How does he create birds and dogs and uh, cats and even plants that can communicate with each other? You know, like they talk about how like mushroom fields can talk to each other under the fungus and stuff. It's crazy. Um, but how, do, how does a God who has never communicated know how to do that? So that's just one like quick example at Islam. There's more. But, um, and then you think about with uh, Mormonism. Talking about uh, what's get, when we get into the really weird of Mormonism, you know, the, the fact that if you, keep, if you keep all the commandments correctly, and if you join the Aaronic priesthood, and if you join the Michalcic priesthood, and if you did, uh, you know, you, you just do it all right, and you gave a certain amount of money, then God might give you your own plan, and you'll become your own God. Well, then you go to, well, then uh, how do we know that's true? Because Elohim, who they, they, they call their God, he was a man on another planet, who earned godhood, but like, how do we know that he knows why he earned godhood? Or and what if it's not the exact same as the method that he thought it was? Like, how? Do, like, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of just uh, danger in that. Like, well, how do you know that he was that that Elohim actually did all those things and is not a demon lying to you, um, which he is, because that's the. the the, the god of, or of Mormonism is a false god. So that's, those are two examples. And then going back to, um, to talking about creation, we talked about that 1 in 10 to the 229th power chance of the world existing in order to sustain life. And even, even like when I was doing research on this, I was reading a website from NASA for kids. And it was talking about this um, equation of possible habitable planets in the universe. And it's funny because they're, they're, this, this estimation that this guy had, I believe it was like the, da- the Drake equation, I think. And he was thinking there could be a thousand to a hundred million habitable planets in the universe. But he's just, he was basing that on a bunch of variances of possible habitable planets, not that they're actually habitable. And of course, we don't even know how many planets are out there. The universe is humongous that God made. But it's like, even then they're like, it's just a very, it's a very slight chance that any of this is possible is what they're arguing. And we see that, like, if life exists the way it does, then it tells us there had to be a creator. There was a designer. Uh, this is where the intelligent design theory comes in. How does an eyeball, like, if you take an eyeball of a human and one part's removed, the whole thing fails. Like, how, how did it jump from the part before? Like, if it was simply, like, you know, it just kept getting more complicated as time went on, how come it can't get reversed? You know, how come you can't reverse it? It gets to a point where it's, it's maximum level of complicated, and you can't reverse it without breaking the whole entire thing apart. Just that does not make sense. Then it, it, there must have been a designer. So um, anyway, I hope that that was a blessing for you. But the main thing is, uh, the main thing I think we should get tonight is that with logic and reasoning, with, uh, it's okay to have uncomfortable conversations with people about the faith. The Holy Spirit will be with you. He'll comfort you. He'll guide you. And we see plenty of other people uh, before us, whether it's in the Bible or um, missionaries before us, martyrs, maybe just even, like, not even missionaries, just regular Christians like you and me, have gone before us and been persecuted for their faith or bravely stood up for the faith. I want to look back at, um, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 3, you see, uh, it, it's, it's funny, we mentioned Solomon's porch earlier in John chapter 10. So later on Solomon's porch, you have Peter and John. How did they get there? Well, in the beginning of, John, of Acts chapter 3, we see that uh, 
Peter looks at the man who's been crippled since birth. We find out later that he was, he was 40-something years old. Sees the man who's crippled from birth, and the man looks at them, um, expecting them to give him some money. And he says, silver and gold I have none, but such as I have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So he took him by his right hand, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And then um, as that's happening, we see, uh, as the lame man, it says in verse 11, And as the lame man, which was healed, uh, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them on the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. It's so ironic, right, that a few years before, or maybe in a year or two before, maybe in a year before, Jesus is on that same porch, Solomon's porch in the columns, um, being asked to defend, you know, who are you? And he's like, I told you plainly I'm who I am. You saw my miracles. Well, then we see Peter uh, following Christ, doing the exact same thing, which is defending Christ and who he is and what he did. And he does it bravely. And, of course, by the end of that, next thing he knows, uh, he and John and the lame man are in prison for it. And they are eventually let go. But um, even with that fear of prison happening, Peter later on goes on and shares the gospel more, ends up in prison again, and eventually he ends up being killed for it. So we shouldn't fear the world, uh, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we shouldn't fear the world, but rather we should be bold to share the gospel with all those around us, and that we should use tools like logic and reasoning. Um, I'll give you some, you know, I've given you some resources. I would recommend Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler. There's plenty of great resources like that you can read to learn more about how, like, just logically and reasonably, like, how God exists and how to defend that to others. Um, so hopefully that was a good introduction, and then just maybe some, there was some uh, convicting there as well. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gospel that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He kept your law perfectly. He obeyed you every step of the way, and uh, we, we, we can't in our sin, Lord. We fall short of you every day, and, and we're sinful to the core. God, thank you for his death on the cross that took the wrath that we deserved in hell, and Lord, that um, he took that wrath forth on the cross so that if we believe in him, we might rise with him. Like, as he rose from the dead, we can walk in newness of life, being freed from our sins and uh, living as a new creation in your, uh, uh, for you, um, making your name known so that the world might come to know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for the gospel being preached every Sunday. And Lord, um, help us to take that gospel that we hear and to take it to the world, a world that's lost and dying and in need. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.